Good morning. I'm filling in for Pastor Jeremy while he's taking a much-deserved and much-needed break. I'm so thankful for our pastor. I am, I'm thankful that uh, he has the freedom to just stop and rest and step away. And I'm thankful that he has a church that not only allows that but encourages that. Uh, he'll be better for it. And uh, I'm, I'm privileged to have the honor to, uh, that he would ask me to, to fill in for him. That's a big job. I told Jennifer Manafort, for pastor, kind of preaching was kind of not so good, you know. It wouldn't be so hard, but it is good. And so um, uh, I'm, I am thankful, though, to have this uh, privilege. I'm also a little afraid. It's kind of like being a, a six-year-old on the high dive. You want to jump, but you're also a little terrified. And, and part of that is, you know, standing in front of a crowd, but really a lot of it is because you're handling the Word of God. We're opening up the book of Isaiah today, Isaiah chapter 62, 700-something years before the birth of Christ. And yet you could take this book and you could walk on to Eastern's campus or to work or anywhere and share the gospel as plain and as clear as any New Testament passage. Hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. It is the revealed prophetic word of God. It predicts the future. It, it, it tells us who God is and, and what he wants and, and what he's going to do in the future. And, and, you know, you don't want to mess that up. And so as we look at this passage, let's stand and read together knowing we are, we are hearing the word of God and the, the Bible is about Christ. And so as we look at this passage, let's, let's hear what God has to say for us today. Isaiah chapter 62, verses 1 through 5. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Father, I pray that today you're honored, you're glorified, and that you, you feel our worship, our reverence for you. God, I pray that we hear from you, from your word. We rightly speak of it and understand it. God, let only what you would have us hear be said and let us walk away having understood you and having seen a glimpse of you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Love is not a feeling, 
It is a decision. If love were a feeling, I would have been out of the marriage business a long time ago. As a teenager, sitting in my country Baptist church and hearing that from the pulpit, I thought that made a lot of sense. It sounded very practical to me. I'd actually never been in love at that point, but I, I thought that was practical. And maybe I was a little too practical for my own good. That's one of my shortcomings. I recently uh, was telling Ella that I probably should cut back on eating so much potato chips, and she advised against it because she said that was the only thing keeping me from becoming full robot. <laughs> and I, I kind of took that as a compliment, which is, exposes how bad off I am about this pragmatic stuff. But you know, it's funny, last weekend we were, I was thinking about this passage, and, and I was thinking about that statement, and there was a book on the coffee table in a rental cabin we were at no kidding and it said love is a decision that's just the title and I thought man that's a powerful uh, sentiment and statement and and I would say it's actually true um, love is a decision it makes it takes some grit but there's a lot of young men here today and, and maybe a lot of men who have been married and had to convince a girl to marry them if a young man tells the girl that he wants to marry that it might not exactly sweep her off her feet. She's not going to like quote that on Instagram. He told me love is a decision. If you can imagine, if you can hear, you know, hear this said by a young man to a young woman, honey, love is a decision and I've decided to love you. So even if I have no feelings for you in the future, I will always be there because I made a decision. So you can marry me with that assurance. She, she probably doesn't want to hear that. She probably wants to hear something more like this. When I see you smile, I see a ray of light. I see it shining right through the rain. Now, don't write that down and use that. Those are sappy lyrics from an 80s love song. The band was Bad English. Some of you, you 50-year-olds know what I'm talking about. Uh, and, but I didn't choose that to make fun of that, no kidding. Um, those are sappy lyrics, but as sappy as that is, if a young man wants to win a girl's heart, I think he's better off with the ray of light speech than the decision speech. Is that, is that accurate, young ladies? All right, maybe, maybe not. Um, why is that? Because love is a decision in many ways. Isaiah 62 is telling us that's not all it is. It's telling us that the boy who wants to say something that sounds a little more ray of light and the girl who wants to hear it aren't being silly. In fact, that desire is woven into the fabric of our identity. It is by design. And so when young men feeling like saying something that maybe is a little poetic and mushy, they feel like it's bigger than just a chemical reaction. It's, it's, it's more than just survival of the fittest kicking in and, and preservation of the species. It is something that we can call transcendent. It is beyond. It is bigger than the moment. It points to something larger. It's pointing to something we've never known. It's giving us maybe even a longing for a place we've never been to. Scholars say this passage, this book, 
The purpose of Isaiah is to declare the good news that God will glorify himself through the renewed and increased glory of his people, which will attract the nations. That's what the experts say this book is about. And so why this, this chapter? Is this a chapter about marriage in the book of Isaiah? Well, really, it's been said that the, the Bible is a book about marriage. The, the, the beginning is a wedding with Adam and Eve. And the end in Revelation is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then Jeremiah, Isaiah, Hosea, uh, Ezekiel. It's filled with language about God as the husband and Israel as his bride. And then Paul, just in case we missed all of that, just says in Ephesians, let, let me set you straight. Marriage is about Christ and the church. That's this mystery. It's profound. But that's what it's about. And here in Isaiah, it's saying something specific about God and his bride. And it directly speaks to us today, married or single. This passage doesn't tell us about marriage as much as it shows what marriage tells us about God. And so what's, what's the big deal? What does marriage show us about God? What, why, why is marriage such a big deal in the Bible? And isn't it interesting, despite our best efforts, marriage just doesn't go away. It's still here. No matter how bad we distort it, even with all the terrible examples of marriage outside of the church and inside of the church, no matter how inconsistent marriage is really with the survival of the species, no matter how, how outdated it is, no matter how much our society seems bent on just discrediting monogamy in general, why can't we get rid of it? Why doesn't it just go away? Maybe it's because there's something more to it than tradition. There's something bigger in it than just falling in love. It's something more than survival. It's a sign. It's a picture. It's a reminder from God. And marriage is built into our design code so that even those with the gift of singleness see something in it that is more than just a search for human happiness. So what does marriage show us about God? I'm so glad you asked. Because in Isaiah chapter 62, I think that's exactly what it's showing us. The first thing in these first verses, 1 through 3, marriage shows us God wants good for us. In verse 1, he says, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings of your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You will be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. And in this passage, you and your are in the, the feminine singular, addressing Zion. And then again in verse 12, God is speaking of Zion, his people, in this future state of perfection, in this feminine singular tense. And he's referring to them in the language of a groom speaking of his bride. And he's got a zeal for his bride. He is saying, I will not keep silent. And maybe us, some of us men can relate with this. If we can think back to when we first met our wives. Um, or maybe some of you young men can relate to this with the girl you, you've met recently. I remember when Jennifer and I just met. 
Uh, soon after we met, uh, this, I was not yet married, but uh, it was uh, it's right after we met, which is a very short window because from the time we met until we got married was 90 days. And so we were really excited. Uh, but <laughs> I, was, I was riding in a car with, with four or five guys, and um, uh, I was telling them about this girl I'd met. And I was talking really fast, and I was really excited. It had only been a few days, I guess. And I was telling them all about her and what she was like and what she did and who knows what else I was saying. I was just rambling, I guess. And finally, one of my friends spoke up and he said, man, I'd like to meet her. And I started like reeling it in just a little bit because I was not, that's not my, my point of what I was wanting to accomplish there. But here God, he is not backing off from bragging about his bride. That was his purpose that the whole world would say, I want to meet her. He wants his people, he wants people, the nations, it says, to see and admire his bride. She is his crown of beauty in his hand, the highest place of honor. And he wants to attract the nations through his bride. And throughout the Old Testament, the purpose of Israel is to introduce and represent God to a fallen world. They've forgotten him, but Israel has met him, but they've done a terrible job. He is regularly, all throughout the scripture, referred to them as his bride, but she's often in betrayal. So, so much for showing the world who God is through this betraying wife. But that's not how the story ends. We do, we exist for God's glory and and so does the whole universe. But that's, that doesn't mean God just uses us for his purpose of getting glory for himself and then tossing us aside when he's done with this. In this passage, we see what his plan is for us. And it's one of those rare times where he talks about our glory. I, I was almost reluctant to talk about this because I'm, we're such a narcissistic culture. I'm afraid we're going to say, see, I knew it was all about me. It's all about me getting the light. And that's not what he's saying here. But he is saying that the nations will see the glory of his people in this, this fully restored state, this, this, this state of, of being saved, of being restored, of having righteousness that shines like a torch. He's saying the world will see what God's people have become and they will be amazed. God's master plan for glorifying himself is nothing less than making his bride as perfect as his son. And that's the mission of Jesus. He didn't just come to die and be raised from the dead so that we could just be nicer versions of ourselves, like John 2.0. He came for something way bigger than that. And C.S. Lewis, as always, has a great way to put it. He says, mere improvement is not redemption. Though redemption always improves people, even here and now, and will, in the end, improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. So God has a plan, and he set it in motion with Jesus, and we are already seeing the changes. We see this slow and clumsy process of becoming Christ-like when we turn to Christ and follow him, but what we will be 
this passage says, will astound all of creation and will all be his doing. Marriage shows us that God intends good for his bride and he cannot help but talk about her. He says, I will not be silent. So, so what do we do with that? Well, one, remember our purpose. Uh, we're the bride of Christ. We're a reflection of him. We're called by his name. We represent him. So we need to ask ourselves a really hard question. What do people learn about God by knowing me? Husbands, specifically, we need to follow God's example. It's as easy as just speaking good about your wife to others. It doesn't mean you pretend like she does no wrong or has no flaws, but to others, you follow this pattern of speaking good about your wife to others. Want good for her. Work for her good. Plan for her good. Say good things about her to others. It's that simple. Let the people in your circles see what it means for a husband to boast about his wife. Let people see a man whose eyes light up when his wife walks in the room and they will see a little glimpse of what it looks like to be restored to God. And if for some, that might create a hunger for something that they've never known. It's something that may be missing in their marriage, but more importantly, missing in their souls. This is what God does to his bride. And we all desire it. We're all missing it apart from Christ. Marriage shows us that God wants our good, but Isaiah chapter 62, verse 4, marriage shows us God wants us back. Look at uh, verse 4. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. So remember, the immediate audience here is, is Israel, the nation of Israel. And they were God's chosen people, but not for anything they had done or anything unusual about them. He, he just chose them for no merit of their own. You can look down in verse 12. They weren't stand out. They were sought out. But he made a covenant with them. And even as he made the covenant... You can see in Scripture, you can, you can see this in Genesis chapter 15 as plain as day. When God made the covenant, he already knew that they would not keep it. And he lost them. They turned to other gods, other kings, idols. They worshipped statues. And as, as stupid as that sounds to us, it was that stupid to God. But that's what they did. They worshiped statues of cows. And he described it as adultery. He felt it as adultery. They were supposed to be a people that caused the world to seek out the one true God, but instead they humiliated him before the whole world. They did what not even the pagans would do. In Jeremiah chapter 2, God said, has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But Israel 
changed gods. That wasn't done. And they had the one true God, and they betrayed him. They didn't deserve to live. They certainly didn't deserve forgiveness, but God didn't offer forgiveness. He offered full restoration. Israel just did what the rest of the world did. They'd, they'd turned their back on him only after knowing him. They humiliated him and destroyed the relationship with him. It's what all of us have done. Whenever, whenever we have sinned, our sin has made a separation between us and our God. But this, this verse says he wants us back. The language he uses in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and all throughout the Bible is the language of a husband who wants his wife back. He's saying your title was forsaken, but it will again be married. Anyone who's ever been betrayed knows that there are a few things more painful than that. And that's what Christ endured when we reject him, when we love something else more than him. And yet Jesus makes this offer continually today. Just come back. Come back and all is forgiven. Not only forgiveness, but full restoration. And even that's not all. Verse 5, marriage shows us that God enjoys us. Look at verse 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This language of sons is a poetic way to say that the people of Jerusalem will love and cherish their city and the people of God will forever delight in it and be so committed to it, to their eternal dwelling place, it can only be described as, as marriage. He uses marriage over and over in this passage because it helps us understand some of our most intense feelings. And he's trying to paint a picture of, do you know how that is? Do you know how that feels? Do you know how important and big that is to you? There's a, that's a glimpse of what's in store. But look at that last part of verse 5. Some things in the Bible are hard to understand. And some things, some customs are strange. But I can get this. He says, as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I remember the day I saw Jennifer walking towards me in her wedding dress. And I was sweating a lot more than I'm sweating right now. But, and that's a lot. But it was outside. And it was June. And I was wearing a black suit. And... She's wearing all white and white hats. Like, man, I wish I had that on. But for comfort, not for, no, I really didn't much that. But she looked so beautiful and cool and, and like, like she was floating. And we were outside and there was these little wooden steps. And she was wearing white shoes, I remember. And she was coming up those stairs. And I was so taken aback and blown away when I saw her. And it wasn't just because she was so beautiful. It was what she was saying by putting on that dress walking through that crowd of people towards me that I, I was overwhelmed. I, I didn't, I, I was just, it, it's just burned in my memory. And there's a little picture of her, I've got of her stepping up those wooden steps. And I still go up those steps. They're on the family farm and they're, they're treated wood, so they're still there, but they're getting rough. You know, it's been 26 years and, and I, I catch myself worrying about those steps. I look at them and like there's, they're not in the same shape that they were and, and they're getting old. And I, I keep thinking, 
okay, these, these wooden steps have become irrationally precious to me because they're just wooden steps, but I just think, well, what's going to happen someday? Are we just going to tear these up and haul them off? Her precious foot stepped on that as she walked up to me in those little white shoes. That can't happen. Um, and so, I, so when I read this passage about God rejoicing over us like a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, I, I have a glimpse of what that means. Um, Jesus, the bridegroom, delights over his bride. Uh, another example to just help us to grasp this and understand it because so many of us have experienced this from one side or the other or we've seen it and, and understood it and have this inner, this sense that this is important, that this matters. I remember once uh, we went to Disney World and I had been to Disney World like all my life as a child and then as an adult uh, many times and uh, older, you know, younger adult. And then Jennifer had just never been. And so um, uh, we, I took her, took her and the girls and uh, Grant, and, and they, were, they were really young. And I thought, all the kids are going to love this. I was not prepared for Jennifer's reaction. Uh, you, you walk into Disney World, you know, and it's, it's Main Street, I guess they call it. And uh, uh, when you first go in, there's Main Street, and there's a lot of stuff going on. It's like a little city, except something like out of a child's book. There's the, there's the town, but there's, there's like dancing animals and music and balloons and a parade. Oh, and there's a giant castle in the background and princesses and just, you know, it's just blowing your mind. And uh, I remember walking in there and like preparing myself to see what the kids' reaction was. I didn't pay any attention to the kids. There was no amount of dancing Mickey Mouses that could have distracted me from Jennifer's face. She wept. <laughs> Tears running down both cheeks, falling off of her chin. Hand over her mouth. You know you, you've either done something really good or really bad. <laughs> and like, you hope it's good. Uh, that's a woman thing. I just, men don't do this. Um, but man, they're, they're nothing. No amount of fireworks or flying fairies could have taken my eyes off of her face uh, when, when we walked in there. I didn't see anything. Um, she was overwhelmed, and, and at that moment, uh, I delighted in her. And I loved it that I had brought her there. And it was a good thing they'd already run my credit card because... If they said, sir, that would be $100,000, I would be like, just pay the money. <laughs> uh, I would have paid any price to see that look on her face. And God has something to show us, and he describes it as a city. And it's unlike anything we've ever seen. And yet, we're homesick for it. We long for it, a better place Jesus said he's gone, and he, would, he said he would go and prepare a place for us. And when we see it, we'll be overwhelmed. It will be more marvelous than Disney's best day. Um, there'll be more things than it will be possible for us to take in. 
But the most stunning thing of all won't be all that we see. It won't even be the unbelievable family reunions with the believers that have gone on before us. The most stunning thing of all will be that at that moment, God will be rejoicing over us. Husbands, what if we don't paint that picture? That's our job. As generations of believers watch this increasingly marginalized weird group called the church, what are they going to see? Will they see church-going couples living together with no concern about God's design for sex only in marriage? Will they see young men in the church delaying marriage and saying it's because of money or school when it's really about the guy keeping his options open? Or worse, just trying to avoid hardship, financial strain, responsibility? What does that tell people about Christ in the church? Will they see Christian men who have stayed faithful in their marriages, but then they just ignore their wives so they can obsess over their careers or buddies or hobbies or toys or computers or sports or books or anything else? Why is there a saying that marriage is when a woman gives up the attention of every man for the inattention of one man? Is that true in the church? Will they see men in the church that allow their wives to make sacrifices while seeking comfort for themselves? What does that tell the world about Christ and the church? Will they hear passages like this where the the bridegroom delights over his bride and think of it as some kind of short-lived emotional rush that always grows cold over time? How can the world possibly imagine a groom that even while he looked at his bride in delight, he could see her betrayal and his own death ahead? He still signed the marriage certificate knowing he was also signing his death certificate. He bound himself to a covenant with her that he knew she could never keep. And he went through it anyway. His love never grows cold over time. You see, the Bible doesn't just tell believers, just stick it out in your marriage and, 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 and hang in there no matter how miserable it gets. Proverbs chapter 5 says, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Be intoxicated. Always with her love. It literally means led astray. Be crazy stupid in love with your wife, the one you married in your youth. And do you see why this is more than just marriage advice? This is a picture of God and Israel, of Christ and the church. His love never fades. It's like the day a groom sees his bride walking down the aisle forever. Delight in your wife, husbands. Some of you maybe are like me and you're really pragmatic. You need like, okay, what's the next step? Okay, here's here's some down-to-earth application. Husbands, future husbands, think about what makes your wife smile. Then come up with an action plan where the outcome will be that your wife smiles. (laughs) I, I didn't mean that to be funny, but... I actually did this. 
this, this works. That was not a joke. Write, write this down. So you think about that. What would make that happen? You, if you really want to swing for the fences, shoot for this. <laughs> if she does that and you haven't done anything wrong, you've definitely achieved your purpose. So think about it. Just picture that. And now brainstorm. What would I need to do to set up the scenario where she smiles? Or better yet, covers her mouth. Write down a lot of ideas. Some of them will be very, very bad. That's why you need more than one. <laughs> Look at all the ideas. Maybe run them by someone. Uh, daughters are really helpful and stuff like this about telling you how stupid ideas are. <laughs> and then find a f one or more that, are, that are, are good. And don't think, I've got to get all this done right now. Just decide what's the first step. The first step might just be a phone call. The first step might be clearing the date. First step would be something easy. And when you get confused and don't even know what you're doing anymore, remember step one, which is the outcome. Your wife is smiling. And then start the brainstorming process again. That's a, that's a very, very pragmatic, down-to-earth application of this passage. Because often, often a woman knows when her husband is working for her good. It's hard to hide when he's sacrificing for her joy, striving to see her smile. And sometimes, just sometimes, she will thrive and flourish in other areas of her life when she knows she has a person who would give himself up for her. And it might occasionally result in some admiration towards, your, towards you as a husband. And you might just might start this virtuous cycle of seeking her good, striving to see her smile, and watching her begin to flourish while sometimes just noticing that she's admiring you. And when that happens, that is the most wonderful feeling in the world. And I would pay almost any price to get to that. And at that moment, that is just a faint shadow of the joy that comes from being in a relationship with your Creator. When we know that God delights in us and we respond with love and appreciation and we remember what he has done for us and we see what he's continually doing for us and we hope in what he is going to do for us and we respond with gratitude and faith, he gets more joy from us. That's the future for the believer. Never reaching the end of knowing God's infinite love for us. That's the picture the world needs to see. There are people hurting, betrayed, empty, constantly disappointed in relationships, constantly striving after them, seeking something that they're beginning to wonder if it even exists. And they need to know that there's a God who wants them back. They need to see it, see what it looks like when there's a love that never grows cold. They need to see an example then you see a bridegroom that rejoices over his bride and does until he's in the grave. So that when they hear this Jesus who is calling them back, they'll have a glimpse of what he is calling them to. So there's a lot to live up to. But it's important that we understand no matter how hard we try, we're going to mess this up. And sometimes beyond recognition. We're all going to get it wrong. Every one of us. Sometimes it'll be our fault. 
Sometimes it won't be, but it's not, it's not going to be the ideal. Sometimes our relationships are going to be broken beyond repair. But it's not wrong for us to long for the ideal, the vision of what marriage is supposed to be. Because we didn't get silly ideas from fairy tales. The fairy tales came from a real desire that is written on the human heart by our creator. Here's a true story. Once upon a time, there was a great king, and he chose a bride for himself, and she was of no noble birth. But she rejected him and was captured by the king's enemy. But he came to her rescue and won, <clears throat> excuse me, won her over. And they lived happily ever after. That's a true story. And no matter if we're married or single or divorced or widowed, God is inviting us into his love story. Let's pray.